All right. So today we're talking about Christmas is for skeptics. Let's pray, because we're not skeptical. I'm not skeptical. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, I thank you that your love for us is something that we can count on. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this time in your word, this time thinking about the facts of Scripture, to encourage us that we're not believing in cunningly devised fables, but we're believing in the historical testimony of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would help anyone who's here, who's wrestling with these things, to come to a place where they're confident that you, Lord Jesus, are the right place to put their faith. Please, Lord, we pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. Skeptic. What's a skeptic? Well, here's how Oxford Dictionary defines skeptic. There's two uh, definitions. One is a person inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. I've definitely been a skeptic uh, on that definition. The second one we're going to look more at at the very end. An ancient or modern philosopher who denies the possibility of knowledge or even rational belief in some sphere. We're going to talk about that toward the end. But I I want to kind of talk a little bit about my own story. For me, growing up for Christmas, Christmas, looking forward to Christmas was always a day that kind of started off really hopeful. Uh, My parents divorced when I was about six years old, but Christmas meant a time when we all kind of gathered as a family. It was a chance for us to kind of feel like a family. Our, Our family was poor by American standards, at least. We were quite poor, but Christmas meant we got to enjoy a sense of material prosperity. My dad, bless him, did a really great job of getting us a bunch of like maybe a dozen presents apiece, all from like Poundland kind of a thing. But still, we got to open up lots of presents, and it made us feel like we were doing well materially. My family was not at all religious, but you know, the, the, during Christmas, the mentions of God, they were at least respected. There was kind of at least a head nod that you know this is a good thing to be respectful of. But the problem was, the end of the day always kind of ended with drunkenness or bitterness or ingratitude. In fact, often it ended in a fistfight. It, it was just this thing where, as much as there was a hope that maybe Christmas would be the day when things would be as they should, it didn't end up being that day for us. And I think sometimes we can feel that way, not just about Christmas Day, but about Christianity about Jesus. Things just aren't happening as I thought they would. They're just not what I thought they would be. And we can begin to doubt. We can begin to wonder, is it right to believe this? We can begin to question. Okay, well, they say that Jesus is God, but how do I know? They say I should trust the Bible, but how do I know? And this is, to me, one of the great things about Christmas, because what happened to me in in October 1987... Uh, as, a, as a teenager, as someone who had been already at a young age asking the big questions of life, is there a God? Where did I come from? Where am I going after I die? Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? All these things going through my head. In October of 1987, I went to a church service and I heard 
a simple but clear message about the person of Jesus. And God saved me. He got a hold of my life. And I remember in that December, Christmas being different. It was my, what I would call my first real Christmas. And, and one of the things I did when I was decorating the house that year was I got this fake snow. You know not fake snow you can spray on stuff? You know what I'm talking about? It was California. It's the only snow we're going to get. <clears throat> and I, I sprayed on the window, the front window of our house, happy birthday, Jesus. And my dad said, well, okay, that's, that's cool. I guess that makes sense. You know, it's fine. You can do that. But the thing was, it, for the first time in my life, I realized I could actually have hope on Christmas Day, not, not because there, there wouldn't be any drunkenness or ingratitude or even violence, but because I knew what the day was about. It was about this Jesus. But this is more than about just having a personal faith. This is about recognizing that the faith that we each have, and all of us have some sort of faith. Uh, as a, kind of a spoiler alert, I don't think there really is any of the real skeptics in the world as in that second uh, definition. All of us have faith in something. But what I really hope happens at the end of today is that we walk away going, you know what? The best place for my faith to rest is on Jesus Christ. So there's three things that I want to, to, to us to think about when it comes to faith in Jesus. The first is this, is that faith is logically reasonable. It's logically reasonable. It makes sense. Now, here's why I start this premise. I don't start just by this idea that I like Jesus and I think he saved me, therefore I think it's reasonable. No, I start with the book that tells us about Jesus, the New Testament. The New Testament is reliable historical testimony. That's what it is. It, it's not mythology. There's a lot of people that want to say, isn't Christianity mythology? Some of you may even have, have heard this idea that, that well, well, what we read about in the New Testament about Jesus is just kind of borrowed from Greek mythology or, or other ancient mythologies about, uh, you know, a half God, half man, and how he rises from the dead. None of that's actually true. When you look into those mythologies, they're very vague or they're radically different than what we read in the New Testament. What we read in the New Testament is, especially like in Luke's Gospel, which we just got done looking at, we read about places and people, things that are verifiable. Luke especially writes as historian, and, and it's interesting because oftentimes when, when, when critics would read the New Testament, historical critics would read the New Testament, they would say, oh, here's a place where Luke didn't know what he was talking about. And then they would do research, archaeological research, and find out, actually, no, uh, they were wrong. Let me give you just one example of this. Luke chapter 3, Luke begins the section uh, giving us a bunch of, uh, of, uh, of clues about when he's writing and who he's, who, who's uh, around at that time. And he names different people who were in charge. One of them, if you see up on the screen, is a gentleman by the name of uh, Lysanias, the tetrarch of uh, Abilene. Now, the, the interesting thing about this guy is that uh, that critics used to say, uh, critics of scripture used to say, oh, see, here's where Luke got it wrong, because we know that that guy who did was a tetrarch wasn't a tetrarch till 50 years after the time of Christ. But they did some digging, they, literally digging. They dug up uh, in, in the areas of, of, of that part of the world, and they found evidence that, well, actually, there might be somebody else. L listen to what the Oxford reference uh, actually talks about this. Listen, the reference to Lysanias in, 
in Luke 3.1 as a tetrarch of Abilene, northwest of Damascus, initially seen as a mistake, since only Lucinus certainly, uh, the only, the only certainly known died 336 BCE. There was, however, another Lucinus in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, to which Luke is referring. Since an inscription bearing the name Lucinus was found in Albina, the city in Abilene, uh, and dated between 14 and 29 CE, or of the Christian era. In other words, what they thought was wrong, the scripture was wrong, when they did more research, what did they find out? The scripture was actually right. That's just one of many, many places that say this. In fact, I'm going to quote two just uh, general scholars about this. A man by the name of John McRae, who was a PhD in archaeologist, a professor of, of the New Testament at Wheaton College. He, he was a, a well-known biblical archaeologist, and here's what he said. Archaeology has not produced anything that unequivocally is a contradiction to the scripture. Not anything. A, a, another well-known scholar, uh, a guy named, by the name of Dr. Edwin Yamuchi, a professor emeritus of ancient history at Miami University of Ohio, he says, we have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion. See, here's what we understand about the scripture. When we talk about the New Testament scripture, we're not talking about a book that fell from heaven. We're not talking about something that people made up. We're not talking about stories or mythologies. We're talking about historical testimony. So that when we think about Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about someone who is dealt with historically. Now, someone might say, in fact, some people have accused, they've said the scripture has been changed. Well, that might have been true originally, that these guys were writing down uh, what they knew about Jesus, what they were sure about Jesus, but the scripture must have been changed. But actually, when you compare the scriptures to other ancient writings, you see the scripture by far is more trustworthy. There should be a chart on the screen for you. I'm not going to uh, go through the whole thing. There's actually probably several other, uh, there are several other uh, entries we could have put on here. But just notice the first one. You, you may have heard of the Iliad, this mythology written by Homer. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a historical mythology. In other words, it takes place in a, in a real place uh, with, with, with people and, and, and places, right? Um, but it is a mythology. Now, this was written... Uh, or uh, in around the 9th century. And the earliest copy we have is uh, from 400 B.C. That's actually 500 years after the time it was origin, uh, written. And we only have copies, about 643 copies. All right? So this is one of the ancient writings that people are, are sure, like historians, literary, literary historians would say, yes, we believe that Homer actually wrote the Iliad at this time, even though they have 643 copies uh, or partial copies, and the, the, the earliest one is 500 years past the date. If you drop down to the Greek New Testament, okay, the apostles and the other companions, their companions who wrote down the Greek New Testament, okay, in anywhere from 45 to 100 in the year of our Lord's, okay, we have the earliest copy we have is about 125 A.D. Now, it's the earliest copy of a New Testament manuscript. There are other earlier copies than that of other things. And so, basically, the gap between that, so the New Testament, and uh, what we have in the earliest copy is only 30 to 300 years. So, so if scholars are willing to, to say, yes, we believe that there was this guy, Homer, and he did write the Iliad, even though we only have 643 copies of something that's uh, no earlier than 500 years after the original, how much more should we believe, yep, the New Testament is credible history because we have literally over 5,600 copies of the Greek New Testament. 
And we have some copies that are only 30 years old. This is important for a number of reasons. One is, what we're not talking about here is we're not talking about that this proves that the Bible is God's word as we treat it. That's not what we're trying to, to say. What we're trying to say right now is that the Bible is trustworthy history. The New Testament is trustworthy history. In fact, of, of non-Greek manuscripts, uh, the kind of manuscripts that our English Bibles are translated from, there's over 19,000 copies, 19,000 fragments. That's a lot. Now, of course, we know the, one of the reasons for that is because the church made sure these things were copied and distributed. But I want you to think about just that, that point by itself. Listen. If the first Jesus followers thought that the crucial thing they could do was make sure they had an accurate copy of the New Testament, what does that say to us? It says that our faith is based on this book. And it's a trustworthy book. The New Testament is definitely reliable historical testimony. But also, listen, the New Testament is also honest personal testimony. This is also what makes it different from not just mythology, but really from most history. You guys have probably heard the phrase, history belongs to the victor. That basically the, the, whoever won writes their history and makes themselves look really, really good. That's usually how history goes. Well, listen to this. This is, this is what the things we see, and we've seen this already, haven't we, in, in the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel specifically. That those who knew Jesus best doubted most the resurrection. We saw this a couple weeks ago, didn't we? Now it was Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who were with them who told these things about Jesus being alive from the dead to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale. They did not believe them. You guys remember that just from a couple weeks ago? That, that these guys didn't believe that Jesus was actually alive, even though he had said over and over again that he would be betrayed, beaten, crucified, and resurrected. That's a real honest betrayal of themselves. If these guys were trying to make heroes of themselves or build a religion that would benefit them, they wouldn't make themselves look so dumb. In fact, a famous story you guys all know about Doubting Thomas. Poor guy gets called Doubting Thomas. All the guys were doubting, really. But here's what we read about him in John chapter 20. The other disciples had told Thomas, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. So eight days later, his, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with, was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. So the New Testament shows a real honest testimony of, of men and women who struggled to believe, but ultimately couldn't deny the risen Savior, that he was alive. Now, another thing that's really important as far as uh, looking at the, the fact that, um, <clears throat> that the New Testament is, or faith in Jesus is logically reasonable. Think about the actual message of the New Testament itself. And I hope you've read it. I hope you guys who claim to be Jesus followers are people who actually read the New Testament. I've exhorted you guys in this many times before. 15 minutes a day means you can read it at a slow, prayerful pace, one chapter a day, five days a week, you get through the New Testament in a year. Something you should do year after year after year. And if you read it, here's what you're going to notice. You're going to notice that, guess what? Shocker, it's all about Jesus. Spoiler alert, 
It's all about Jesus. All of it. In fact, listen, the, the, the fact is the, the, the post-resurrection authors, the, these apostles who had seen Jesus resurrected, who then were, were anointed with his Holy Spirit and remembered all the things that he had taught them, they were motivated to document his birth and his life and his death. This was the, the, the center of their teaching, the, the, the foundation and the goal of their teaching. And we even see this when they're getting their message out in Acts chapter 14, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. Here's what we read. It says, so the religious leaders called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak. Notice of what we've seen and heard. So, so we're talking about people who, who doubted the resurrection, then couldn't deny the resurrection, and so they preached the resurrected Christ, that he's alive, that he's real, even at great cost to themselves. In fact, their whole message was this. The apostle Paul would sum up the message of Christianity this way. He said, we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The center of their message was Jesus. Why? Because they saw, they knew that this was the reality that changed their life. This was something that changed everything. This is the, the tenor of the New Testament. It's not about religion. It's not about control. It's not about fear. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. And what he's done to make us right with God. In fact, these men suffered and died for what they could not deny. We mentioned earlier Thomas. Tradition tells us that Thomas ended up going to what's now present-day India and preaching the gospel there. Some of the earliest Christian roots are in India. He preached the gospel there, and there he was eventually martyred for his faith. In fact, church history tells us that all but the Apostle John were eventually martyred for their faith. People believe, uh, die for what they believe all the time. People from all kinds of religious backgrounds die for what they believe, but people don't die for what they know is a lie. And the whole of the Christian faith, the whole of the New Testament, is based on the reality of Christ being resurrected. And these guys were willing to preach this and die, suffer and die for it. John would write this. He says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. The same author, John, would write in his gospel this. Listen, speaking of Jesus, he says, in the beginning, was the word, the, in the, beginning the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. These guys were believing. They worshipped. In fact, there's... there's um, I should have probably had this quote, would have been a good quote. But one of the early Roman historians, Tacitus, writes in about the first century. And he writes about these Christians who worship Jesus as a God. And the reason that's important is because there are some 
higher critics that want to say, oh, the deification of Jesus is something the church didn't do. Uh, really, that didn't come until like the 4th century. That was a, something that Constantine, that's just not true. We have secular uh, uh, evidence that no, they've always worshipped Jesus as God. That's what the scripture points forth as well. Now again, the whole point of all this, the fact that, that the New Testament centers on the personal work of Jesus, that it's honest personal testimony, uh, the fact that, that um, uh, it's reliable historical testimony as well, all of this is just for us to understand that we're not checking our brains out. We're not kind of stopping, we're stopping our thinking by putting our faith in Jesus. And I want you to compare that. Listen, I want you to compare faith in Jesus based on this really surface-level evidence we've just barely dipped into it compared to your faith in anything else. The other things that you're tempted to believe. What other things are you tempted to put your faith in? We put our faith in science. Now, science is a great thing, don't get me wrong. But do you realize the whole foundation of science is the assumption that the, the, the universe is orderly? and observable. It's based on that. That's why the first scientists were really Christians who began to look at the universe that way. But we put our, our faith in the scientific method or methods, whatever you want to say, about how we can find out knowledge. But you know what every good scientist will tell you? That knowledge is changing all the time. In fact, the majority of scientific research is about finding out what we don't know, not what we can know. So think about it. you're putting your faith in something that just proves your ignorance. If our faith, if our life is built on science, again, please don't misquote me. I am not saying we don't trust science. We think science is a good thing. I'm saying if your life is built on that, it's built on something that only exposes our collective ignorance. How much better to build our life on historical testimony of the one who claimed to be God proved to be God, and whose followers worshipped him as God, even to the end of their death, all based on the historical reality of his resurrection. So, so we're not being foolish, we're not just being, we're not having wishful thinking by putting our faith in Jesus. It's reasonable for us to put our faith in Jesus. It's, we should have a confidence, those of us who are Jesus followers, we should have a confidence to share Jesus because we're not checking our brain at the door when we come to church. It's reasonable for us to trust the testimony of Scripture. Now, if it was just about that, though, we could always get argued out of the faith. If we could get argued into the faith, we could always get argued out of the faith. But it's not just the idea of how we came across the Scriptures that's important. Faith in Jesus is, uh, is logically reasonable, but also, listen, it's realistically hopeful. It's realistically hopeful. Now, one of the things that we see when we look at Jesus is that we see that he confirmed our human brokenness and also experienced all our human suffering. This is one of the things that's unique about God, the God of the New Testament, is that the God of the Scriptures enters into our brokenness and doesn't make excuses for it, but experiences it. This is, this is what Jesus says about humanity. Listen, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. That means wanting something you don't have. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality. Don't think of uh, 
a, a natural sexual desire. Think of being moved by your feelings. That's more the idea that your whole life is dictated by your feelings. Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus clearly taught, listen, that the, there's a problem with the world. He didn't ignore the brokenness of the world and that problem is rooted in us, in our own corrupt hearts. He didn't deny this. He didn't ignore this. And yet, again, when you read the Gospels, you know what you see? You see Jesus entering into every kind of human suffering. And not just having compassion on it, though the scripture says over and over again that Christ has compassion on the crowd. In fact, the different Gospels in the, in the feeding of the five 1,000 account in the different Gospels, it says over and over again that he has compassion. Sometimes it says he has compassion, therefore he taught them. Sometimes it says he had compassion, therefore he healed them. Sometimes it says he had compassion, therefore he healed them and fed them. But the point is, all those things happened and they all flowed from his compassion. But he didn't just have compassion on those who suffered physically. He himself suffered physically. He didn't just have compassion on those who lacked material basic material needs. He himself went without basic material needs. He didn't just have compassion on those who were marginalized, on those who were pushed to the sides, who didn't feel like they had real relationships. He didn't just listen. He didn't just have compassion on them. He became one of them. He knew what it was like to be rejected by all his friends. Now Jesus he confirms our human brokenness and he experienced all of our sufferings. He's realistic about how broken the world is. He's not some sort of wide-eyed optimist. Everything's going to be great. Everything's wonderful. I really, I really appreciate this because I am not an optimist at all. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a pessimist. Actually, I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist with a gift of prophecy. That's a joke. You get it? I had that one, you know, almost written down. Come on, you guys have to help me out here. But I can be a real pessimist. I can think the glass is half empty, right? But Jesus doesn't come and say, the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. He comes and says, I'm going to fix that broken glass and I'm going to fill it to overflowing. That's what he does. He's realistic in his view of the world and how he combines the world. In fact, because of this, listen, many of us have stories like the Apostle Paul. Maybe not as dramatic as Paul's story, but uh, listen to Paul's own testimony and see if you can't see some similar things in your own story. Paul says about himself, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I found or I received mercy and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and, de and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. You see in Paul's story a complete recognition of his own brokenness and a complete confidence in the grace and mercy of Jesus. This is what we mean by realistic hope. I, seriously, the good news is not, listen, I had this conversation yesterday morning with a guy who's uh, trying to decide if he wants to come back to church, in our church, somewhere else, but a guy that I was just kind of ran into yesterday and we had a conversation. 
And he was saying, you know, I, 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 I've tried. It didn't really work. Maybe I need to put more effort into it. But there's all these promises that God's going to bless you. And it just doesn't seem to happen. And, and I said to him, listen, do you know the word gospel? He goes, yeah, I've heard it. Do you know it means good news? Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Okay. The good news is not try harder and things will go well for you. That is not the good news. The good news is, though we cannot save ourselves, God has come to save us. That's the good news. But the good news requires us to believe the bad news, that we can't save ourselves. This is what we mean by a realistic hope. This is what Paul came to discover. If you guys don't know this, you may not know this, but the apostle Paul was first a guy named Saul who persecuted Christians because he believed that's what God wanted him to do. In his religious zeal, he persecuted Christians. He killed them. But when, he, when Jesus found him and knocked him off of his horse and got his attention, he received mercy and grace and began to be changed. That's a realistic hopefulness. In fact, with this, listen, for the Jesus follower, we can know this. Our pain is never wasted. Jesus says this in John 16, 33, I have told uh, you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't say, just believe in me, everything's going to go swimmingly for you. No. He says, it's, it's, things are going to be really tough still. And, and the, the, the apostles back this up. Peter writes this. So after you have suffered a little while, he, speaking of Jesus, will restore, support, and strengthen you. He will place you on a firm foundation. You're going to suffer a while, but it's temporary because eventually the Lord's going to come back and make right all things. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We all know this verse, right? And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. Notice of those who love God and are, are called according to the purpose, according to his purpose for them. The reason I point out the those and them is because one of the things that we've got to get through our heads as Jesus followers is he promised us that we're going to go through difficult times, we're going to go through painful things, but that pain has a purpose. Maybe you don't benefit from the pain, but maybe somebody else does. Where else do you find this realistic hopefulness? Seriously. Every other hope is based on us just working harder, trying harder, or manipulating people. But here, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to call you to follow after me, and I have the power to bring the change that needs to be brought so you can have a realistic hope. Yes, difficulty, yes, suffering, but a realistic hope. Not only that, but faith in Jesus is practically beneficial. It's practically beneficial. I've heard many people that say, before I was a Christian, I was X, Y, and Z, and now my life is wonderful. And, and I have to say, when I first became a Christian, I thought, yes, I knew exactly what they meant. Then years down the line, decades, I'm kind of, I'm not too sure if that's true. But actually, I think it is true. I think the problem is our expectations change. Because the, the, the truth is, when God saved me, when God got my attention that October 1987, 
he didn't change my expectation of circumstances. I still thought that first Christmas, there's a good chance people are going to drink too much. There's going to be arguments. People are going to be frustrated in gratitude and great, uh, not thankful for, for what they got for Christmas. There could even be another fist fight. This was a typical thing that happened in our household. But I knew that I knew why Christmas was important. And I knew that the Jesus that, whose birth we were celebrating was actually God in the flesh, and following after him meant I don't have to get drunk. <laughs> I don't have to throw the punch. I can give thanks. You see, it wasn't an escape from circumstances. It was the ability to endure the circumstances and be a light in that darkness. This is what we have. Now, we have this, listen, because as Jesus followers, we see that Jesus set the standard for our relationships. In, in the first of the year, we're going to start a whole series called One Another. And it's all about this standard that he sets for the relationship and why and how he empowers us to live this out. Listen to this. Jesus says in John chapter 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you guys know the story in John chapter 13, you know he literally washed the disciples' dirty, stinky feet. And in doing so, listen, he took the lowest point of the lowest servant in the house. He says, I've done this to set an example for you. This is how you are to prioritize your relationships. In fact, this idea of humility, service through humility, listen, became a cornerstone for Christian behavior. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 2. It says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Think about their feet needing to be washed more than just your own. Let each of you look not only for, to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours, uh, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the same mindset that Jesus had by putting other people before yourself. This is what sets the standard for relationships. This is what Jesus calls his followers to. This practically benefits people. When we say, okay, I have a right, I earn my money, and I have a right to use that money on something that's legal and safe, then I'm going to use my money on what's legal and safe and brings me happiness. You have a right to do that, and you do have a legal right to do that. You even have a moral right to do that. But if you're going to follow Jesus, he calls us to say, now, you can't just think about you. You have to think about others. You've got to think about the, your family. You've got to think about those who are less fortunate. You've got to think about gospel ministry. This changes things. This brings a benefit when we actually follow Jesus. When, we're, when our faith in Jesus is what he calls it to be, practical, it brings a practical benefit to other people. And in fact, listen, th this is also because... He actually, the scripture calls us, and Jesus backs this up, the scripture calls us to pursue a justice, a kind of justice that only he can bring to pass. Listen to this. The Old Testament um, prophet, actually farmer turned prophet named Amos, here's what he wrote. He's famous for writing about the need to pursue justice. He wrote, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate that it may, be, and it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. 
Now, this is Amos calling God's people to repent because they hadn't really made justice a priority. In fact, he later on rebukes them about their being really enthusiastic about worship, but not at all enthusiastic about justice. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. This is God speaking. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If you haven't read the scriptures, but that sounds familiar, it's because it was a, a, a quote that Martin Luther King Jr. used to love to make. The reason I'm bringing this up, listen, is because when we're talking about justice, we're talking about recognizing all the injustice of the world and recognizing, listen, biblically, that comes from us. Remember that realistic hope? We're the, the, we're the ones who bring forth different kinds of injustice. And that ultimately, only a God who can change our hearts can bring real justice. So that as he changes our hearts and we pursue justice, guess what happens? People are practically benefited and are are shown that they can trust this God. He brings change. There's so many examples of this in history. Um, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, there's just too many of them. But I want to encourage you to look this up. I want you to. I want to encourage you uh, to to look up. Uh, Christian impact on Western culture. I know you'll find, you'll find articles from Christians for sure, but you'll find many articles from people who aren't believers in Jesus who will have to admit, listen, that we needed the Christian religion to teach us how to pursue a justice of equality. But yet we can't seem to bring that to pass, can we? Because it only works, listen, when our faith is in Jesus and we see him as the ultimate one to bring it to pass. The only works is that we put our faith in a Jesus who has to change our hearts first. Now, we started this off by saying, or we, we, we said that the whole theme for today is Christian, uh, Christmas is for skeptics. It's for those who are inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. And maybe what, where you're at today is you need to question the accepted opinions about who Jesus is. (laughs) Maybe you've believed that he's only a historical figure. Maybe you've believed that he's was just a good teacher who lived long ago. And you haven't seen that the, the credible historical testimony of Scripture is no, Jesus is God's only son who lived a godlike life and died a sacrificial death and rose from the dead proven he was alive to many, many witnesses. That he's who we need to put our trust in. See, the second definition for a skeptic is uh, in philosophy. It's an ancient or modern philosopher who denies the possibility of knowledge or even rational belief. Can you see that that kind of system, that kind of philosophy is self-defeating? Because if you don't believe, listen, if you don't believe in the possibility of knowledge, How do you know there's no knowledge? It's self-defeating. It doesn't actually go anywhere. Now, the truth is we all believe in something. Doesn't it make sense that we would believe in a reliable historical testimony? To believe in the one who teaches us to have hope that's realistic. And the one who will change us 
and make us able to be practically beneficial to other people and one day to enjoy all that he enjoys with the Father in heaven. I'm not promising anybody here a good Christmas day. I, have, I don't even have control over my own Christmas day. <laughs> Can't control yours. But I can promise you in the one whom we celebrate at Christmas that he's worthy of our faith. And he's worthy to turn away our skepticism and to start to grow. Amen? Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who believe and to believe unto joy. You would help us to be those that know that our faith is not in vain. That we're not just having wishful thinking, that you are trustworthy. And Lord, I pray for those of us that are Jesus followers, that you'd forgive us. You'd forgive us, Lord, for really not believing as we should. We, we might kind of nod our heads that it's logically reasonable to, to trust you, but Lord, our, our hope is based on something that's not, uh, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's not what you want us to believe in. Lord, we, we say we believe, but we do nothing of practical benefit to anybody else. We, we live for ourselves. Our relationships don't look like the relationships you called us to. Father, I pray you'd forgive us for being those who fall short of what it looks like to follow after you, to have faith in you. But Father, I do thank you. I thank you that, that in the gospel, in Jesus, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, we're corrected. That we can see what's right, and even though we fall short of what's right, we can trust you to put us back on that right path. And so I pray, Lord, for anybody who's here today or listens to this, who's thinking, I don't know if I want to believe in this Jesus, I'm still skeptical about this Jesus, Lord, that you would challenge them. That they would not be able to use the hypocrisy of their people as an excuse, but you would challenge them to know that they, they too suffer from that human condition of hypocrisy, which is why they too need a Savior like Jesus. Father, we pray you do this, and we pray together, Lord, for the, the next three services that, Lord, are all desired or, or designed to, to bring the gospel to those who maybe are unchurched. We pray we'd have a blast celebrating who you are and what you've done, and the truth of who you are would go out clearly. Lord, we just commit these times to you and commit the rest of this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right.